Welcome back, everyone, to the Mid-South Television Review Show. I am your host, Mike Mills. And this week, we are going to take you through April the 24th of 1982 of Mid-South Television. I am sitting here with the great Brian Lass, as always, as we take this journey through this week of Mid-South Television, which is fun because I've got a great story to share as we jump into this week's episode. But first, before we get into any of that... Let me welcome in the great Brian Last, the man behind the 605 Super Podcast and the Arcadian Vanguard Network. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing well. I can't wait to hear your story because this was, I don't want to say a step down, but definitely a slower pace of a Mid-South wrestling show than we've gotten used to the last several weeks. You can't always have every show be pedal to the metal, full steam ahead, but there's good stuff on this episode, but it definitely is a change of pace. And I'm curious what the story you're going to have is, but... uh as we get going with the show, obviously, it's Boyd Pierce and Jim Ross. Boyd's in a very relaxing, is it pink? It looks pink. Pink suit. It's very, like, almost like a pinkish, and then it leans towards a gray. It's it's yeah. a dull. I don't, you know, women are good with that explaining different, like, colors. You know, what, what you and I, we see blue, we see red, green, whatever. Uh, a, a woman would be able to tell you exactly what that color, at least my wife would, would be able to go, oh, that's such and such. And, and as I look at it, I go, it's like a dull pink or a lighter pink, I guess, is the way that you can look at it. And then Jim Ross is dressed like a funeral director right next to him. Or an insurance salesman. Or an insurance salesman, one or the other. They tell us what's coming up on this week's show like they always do. We're not going to play it because... There isn't too much special that they say. There's no added feature. It's just kind of a basic rundown of the show. But then we go to our first match here. It is Paul yep. Orndorff versus Larry Higgins, Jack Howe, the referee. Mike, last week we talked a little bit about Larry Higgins and that match he had against Iron Mike Sharp, I believe. And what a mess it was. How there was actually an edit in the show that I'd never seen before where they just cut a part of the match out because I'm guessing he screwed up because he didn't know how to run the ropes. It looked like he was confused in the ring. So what better to do with a wrestler like that than to put him in the ring with Paul Orndorff? And that's what they do here. And this match is a mess. What, what do you have? Okay, so we talked a little bit about Higgins last week. He doesn't know how to hit the ropes, but he, he really, and I, I'm not trying to be mean, but he kind of looks clueless out there. He, he botches the first power slam attempt that Orndorff tries to give him. Oh, yeah. So Orndorff. So Orndorff sends him back into the ropes. Uh, he doesn't hit the ropes clean like we, we keep saying. I mean, he's going to break a rib if he keeps hitting the ropes like that because those are cables, and you hit them going forward. Uh, they can't be kind to your ribs. Uh, let me just point that out. Orndorff does power slam him and pins him, but the guy jumps up from the pin, say, and he's telling – I forget who the referee was here, but he's telling the referee – that or, Jack Howe. He's telling Jack Howe, the referee – Orndorff grabbed his tights. So let me get your point of view. Let me, I want to hear what you have to say. And then I'm going to, I'm going to read you a story from one man gang about this match, the end of it and what happened in the locker room afterwards. Oh, oh fantastic. Cause I'm dying to know, because I didn't know you had this story. What I saw after the second power slam attempt and after the first one, I'm like, Oh no, Orndorff's going to kill this guy after the second <laughs> one. And he kind of bops up at the end. It appeared to me that Orndorff threw a shoot knee right to the yes. head of Larry Higgins. Yes. Yes, you are, you are correct. He <laughs> he dropped that knee on him because he was not at all happy with Higgins popping up from that finisher. I, when we say pop up, he just 
popped up. He first off, he botched the first one, and then the second one, he. I mean, Orndorff even has trouble with the second one because Higgins just just didn't know what he's doing. But Higgins pops up straight to his knees after the power slam in the one, two, three count. So with that said, Brian, would you like me to go into the one man gang's uh, Facebook <laughs> message that he posted a while back specifically related to this match? And he had told me about this off air, uh, but he, he, he never mentions Higgins's name, but now we know it was Higgins. Uh, but you, would you like me to go into that now? Oh, absolutely. And obviously the one man gang is here. He's in the territory. He's at the taping. He's under Skandar Akbar's tutelage. So he would know he was in that locker room. Whatever happened, I got to know what happened. What happened? Okay, so here it is. So I'm reading, I'm going to read this verbatim from the gang's Facebook page from, this is, he posted this uh, about three years ago. He says, hello, Facebook folks. Hope everyone is doing great on this Veterans Day, Wednesday, November the 11th, 2015. Here's a short story about learning the wrestling business the hard way. I had been in Mid-South Wrestling for about two months. We were doing TV tapings in Shreveport, Louisiana at the McNeil Boys Club. No longer there. The dressing rooms were up in a loft-type room. Everyone dressed here, heels and baby faces. There were two doors, one on each side, so the fans didn't know we were all together. The first TV match was a main eventer. He doesn't say Orndorff's name, but we all know it's Orndorff here, who I will not name, but if you go on the YouTube link I've got below, you will see this incident. He is in there versus enhancement talent Larry Higgins. When it came time for the finish, the main eventer threw Larry into the ropes and gave him a power slam, his finishing move. The main eventer got the one, two, three. Larry did not sell the power slam, so you can see. <laughs> he jumped up. Back in the dressing room. Okay, so here's where it gets good. Let me just stop for a second. Back in the dressing room, Larry Higgins comes back from the ring. This main eventer walks over and open hand slaps him. Cause slap across the face real hard, not once, three times in front of everyone, shouting at him that he never, that he better never get up from his finisher like that again, cussing Larry out. Larry took it and apologized. This is just an example of the way the wrestling business was. There were certain things you never did. One for sure, you never got up from someone's finishing move on TV or house show without properly selling it. Would I had slapped him if it was me? No, of course not. But I bet Larry never again forgot to sell someone's finish. Lessons learned the hard way. So there you have it. One man gang witnessed Paul Orndorff cut slap Larry Higgins across the face three different times in front of everyone in the dressing room at the Irish McNeil as he shouted and berated him and cussed him out because he did he popped up from his finish on television. See, now it's going to be interesting because he's going to be in Mid-South for a while. Now we get to watch. Now that we know that incident happened at this television taping after this match, we get to see if things really do change in the weeks ahead. I'm not going to expect him to all of a sudden figure out how to run the ropes, but let's <laughs> see if things change in a match. I mean, it really will be an interesting test now that we know this story. And so when I... When I first read this, I didn't remember this match. So, like, I went back and watched it. And, and at the time when Gang had posted this, he had uh, posted the link to, and I don't know if it's, I don't know if this episode is still on YouTube, uh, but uh, he had posted the link to it. So I went back and watched it. And like Brian said, like you said a second ago, when he takes that power slam and he gets up to his knees and starts popping up from it, Orndorff drops that knee into the back of his head, like to say, "You stupid idiot! What are you doing?" Well, 
So you see that, and you you made that observation as you watched it. But what we didn't know is later on in the locker room, Orndorff took it a step further and slapped the hell out of him three different times because he was no-sold his finisher. And, I mean, he truly no-sold it. There's no speculation. He pops up. He pops right up to his knee, and then he tells Jack Howe, he pulled the tights. Yeah. Dude, what are you doing? Well, the other thing is he had already blown the finish before that. So I think it would have, yes. I don't think it would have been as heavy handed, quite literally, if he hadn't already blown the power slam spot the first time. And who knows how difficult it was for these guys to work with him in the ring because he does not, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean. Like you said, it does not seem like he has any idea what he's doing in the ring. No, he, he, he didn't know. Like, I, I mean, you know, and knowing is not, not knowing or ignorance is not an excuse you know, to be frank, but he didn't know, like you can tell, he just doesn't know. I think maybe he just, you just from what he's doing in there, he, he may have known a few things. He may have known how to take a bump, throw a clothesline, a little simple stuff like that. Maybe take a body slam, but you can tell because it's not one time he hits the ropes wrong. I think this is the fourth time going back to last week where he's thrown into the ropes and he, instead of laying across him, hooking his arm, he, he, he takes them sideways or yeah. in the front. Where he's going to break, I'm telling you, you could break a rib because that cable is strong and it will snap your bone as you fly your full body weight into it. So he just didn't know. And, you know, like Gang said there, lesson learned the hard way for this guy. But uh, Gang doesn't really say in that story that Larry uh, never did that again. But he says, I bet Larry never again forgets to sell that finish. So we will have to watch it. We don't know if if he does it again, but uh, I don't remember him doing it again. Let me say that. The only other people I ever saw run the ropes like him are some of those divas when they were still the divas who would get brought up with no training and just put out in the ring because of the way they looked and they couldn't figure out how to run the ropes. And he was worse than them. So I don't know. He really I, I would really find was. out more about him. Who trained him? What exactly was going on here? But uh, we'll dig into that in the weeks ahead. Let's move on now, Mike, to the next match. Iron Mike Sharp against Ron Cheatham. I will uh, kill the suspense. Mike Sharp wins with his bear hug. Alfred Neely, the referee, but once again on commentary, Jim Ross talks about the strengths of Iron Mike Sharp, a good example of putting over a babyface star on commentary in the hopes that the babyface fans actually give a crap. Here's the mail, and here's Jim. Thanks a lot, Boyd. Of course, you know, Ron Cheatham's got a, he's got a, a big, big job cut out for him here on Mid-South Wrestling, and because... He's wrestling what I think. I, I'm real high on Mike Sharp. I, I have had the opportunity, as I said many times, to see a lot of competitors in the squared circle and see people improve. And I can really see, and I know from talking to the fans around the country that have watched Mid-South from coast to coast, that they can see the same vast improvement week after week after week with Iron Mike Sharp. He's 287 pounds. And, ladies and gentlemen, if you can find an ounce of fat on this man, He'll be doing a good job because he is a tremendous physical specimen, a great amateur background as far as wrestling and boxing is concerned. And as I said last week here, I think that uh, we can parallel him to a National Football League rookie, an All-American from college that just needs some seasoning. He just needs some experience. He's rapidly gaining that experience. I think he's about to turn the corner. I think that we're looking right now at Mike Sharp, at a man that's going to be a, a true and legitimate superstar in this sport. Well, unfortunately, Jim Ross was not correct in that assessment. Mike Sharp was never really used as well as he was used here in the United States, but this is a good, fun match. And once again, like I said, Mike Sharp wins with the bear hug. Any other notes or thoughts on this, Mike? No, just to say that JR, 
you gotta you gotta like and enjoy the fact that he he sells the match to us and why Sharp is an up and coming star. Now Mike Sharp, for those listening, obviously never became a mega star or anything, and his run in Mid South was good as we've talked about in the past, and he's he ends up being just a character up in the WWF later on. But um, you know, I just like the fact that JR sells it as real. It's almost like in boxing where you hear boxers when they start off and they're young and you hear commentators like, you know, this guy is up and coming. He's, he's really turning a corner and JR continues to sell us on his future. You hear it all the time. I'm a big football fan. You hear it there where, you know, you got a rookie who's, who's, you know, he's past his first year. He's then into his second year. And you hear the commentators talking about, you know, this guy's really turning a corner. He's starting to get it. You know, the game, he's catching up to the game. It's not too fast for him anymore. And he's really putting it all together. That's what JR did right there. And it's that's what, what you need now. And what makes wrestling good is a good commentator who can do that for a younger star to talk about him. I mean, it, it's just... That was really done well by by a match that really doesn't mean a lot with Ron Cheatham and Iron Mike Sharp. But that's all I had. I, I just like that right there as, as um, Sharp wins again inside of two and a half minutes uh, with the uh, bear hug. We'll talk about our next match in a second, but why don't we play the introduction to it first? And now we come to the beautiful part of our event. This event is for one fall with a 10-minute time limit. In the red corner from Dallas, Texas, Miss Wendy Richter. And in the blue corner, all the way from Dublin, Ireland, Miss Velvet McIntyre. There's the girl's introduction, and shedding her green jacket, the little Irish lassie, Velvet McIntyre, versus the black and white clad Dallas cowgirl, Wendy Ritster. Okay, now that's one of the problems right there. This whole match is like a battle between Boyd and Jim Ross to who's going to pronounce her name correctly. Because Boyd insists on calling her Wendy Richter throughout the entire match, ignoring the fact that Jim Ross cuts in to talk about Wendy Richter, Wendy, and he says her name a few times, Boyd goes right back to the cowgirl, Wendy Richter. But uh, it's a fun match, Mike. It really is, but I gotta go back to Reeser. Now we come to the beautiful part of our event, just casual. <laughs> you know, it reminds you like when you had the when we had the little people, now oh, it's time for little people and the big girls, or whatever he said back then when we... <laughs> I don't the know if that was men and the little girls or whatever. That, that's it, whatever it was. <laughs> so it's just Boyd. Like, it's funny. Like, so when he says, he says, now it's time for the beautiful part of our event, like as to say, everything else is ugly. Uh, but to, to talk about this match, um, this, this is really good. You know, I, I don't want to do what I'm about to do, but I'm going to do it. So just bear with me. I get, this this whole WWE thing where they're like, oh, we don't call them divas anymore. And don't get me wrong, I love what they do with the women. I think it's the the one of the better things that they do in the company. There there were there were actually women wrestlers a long time ago. You know, Stephanie McMahon did not create women's wrestling. Let's let's just put that out there. You know, I I just feel like I got to say that because the narrative that WWE will always spin is you know they created certain things and they did certain things. Well. Uh, when you watch Velvet and Wendy Richter here, this is a wrestling match. Would you agree, Brian? Yeah, I think it's actually a really good wrestling match. It's a really good, it's, competent. Yeah. They're, they're better than Larry Higgins by far. Jeez, by miles. I mean, this is a really good match. It's not like, oh, it's the women having a match. No, this is a good match on the show, a competitive match. Competitive match. I mean, they do do maybe certain little things that 
I don't know. Women may do more. I mean, there was a little bit of hair pulling. Well, most male wrestlers don't roll around with the referee for an extended period of time during the match to get the fans to pop. Right. Right. So you got the you got little things in there that that you know it's obviously things that only the women will do. But I mean, you know, Wendy Richter was flying around, bumping. They 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 this was hard hitting. There was nothing soft about this. There was nothing diva like about this. They got in there and wrestled each other. Yeah. And another interesting thing about the match, Mike, and I don't recall her doing this often, but Wendy Richter does that old Ric Flair spot where she gets up, she's the heel, and she pushes referee Alfred Neely and he pushes her back. (laughs) You know, he does it with the women's wrestler, the spot where the heel pushes the referee, the referee pushes back. Alfred Neely and Wendy Richter do that spot. It's brief. It's not like, you know, uh, really played up for the crowd, but it happens during the match. Yeah, and that was that that came right after they did the spot where Neely uh, is pushed on to Velvet McIntyre and he kind of falls on her and they roll around the ring, which the crowd gets into. So like you got to the point you made, you got that little, I guess, comedy in there a little bit where they're not going to do that with the guys where Neely's going to roll around, you know, with Velvet with a guy like he did with McIntyre there. But no, it's a wrestling match. They're flinging each other into the ropes. They're hitting the ropes. There's. You know, you talk about the Mid-South style where the punches and kicks are made to look real and, you know, they're they're really laying it in. Yeah, they, these two were laying it in, man. I mean, it, it, it wasn't just love taps and we're just going to go out there so we can look good for the audience. And just so, you know, the audience can see some TNA on the TV. These these girls are drop kicking each other. They're laying it in. They're they're hitting their spots. And like you said, you know, you talked about the match prior with Larry Higgins where he can't even hit the ropes, man. These two can hit the ropes, and they can hit it great. Absolutely. Good match. Everyone should check it out. But moving on with the show here, we get a tag team match, Mike. Oh, by the way, we didn't even give the finish. Velvet McIntyre wins with a variation of a sunset flip, I guess is the best way I could call that. I don't know exactly how to call it. But the next match, we get Bob Roop, the North American champion, teaming with the King of the Southwest, I believe he's called, Tully Blanchard, not by Reese or Bowden, but on commentary. Versus Coco Samoa and Buddy Landell, a good underneath team that the fans really like. Coco Samoa, the more you watch him, you realize he is just a carbon copy in terms of the way he works for Jimmy Snuka. Not just the way he looks, but the way he works. He's working just like Jimmy Snuka. Uh, This is a good match. Jack Howe, the referee. Uh, We'll talk about it in a second, Mike. Why don't we hear Jim Ross a little bit about tag team wrestling here from this match. Boy, of course, tag team uh, matchups are uh, is, a, is an entirely different contrast in professional wrestling. The strategies have to be have to be synchronized between two people, not just yourself. And oftentimes, you find athletes great action there, Buddy Landell moving away from Tully Blanchard. But oftentimes, you find athletes that don't have glowing one-loss records as individuals. But when they team up, they make formidable tag teams because they work well together. They think that they think the same. And they see that maybe their forte is tag team wrestling. So I think that that may be the case here between Buddy Landale and Coco Samoa because obviously the name of the game of professional wrestling is money. The Mid-South Tag Team Championship belts are a very lucrative prize for anyone to hold. So perhaps that's the thinking between uh, the Coco Samoa and Buddy Landale. They will obviously have got a great deal, a big task ahead of them with Bob Roop. You know what? uh... Coco Samoa does a lot more than even the average wrestler. He does a lot of clapping in the middle of the match. I shouldn't say clapping, but slapping his own hands. Every move. Every single thing he does, he does that. Every move. 
He does. <laughs> like, um, he, I know Roop was hitting him with the shoulder tackles in the match, and every time he took the, the tackle, he would get up and he would he would clap. Um, <laughs> that's actually – I know a lot of guys that do that, actually. It's just kind of out of habit uh, that he probably does it, but it's like a rhythm thing for him. But he definitely does. He's taking those tackles, and he gets up and he claps, and he takes a tackle, gets up and claps. Before he hits the arm drag, he claps. Yeah, he he, he, he quite frequent. Every single move, he claps one time. I mean, when we say clap, he's not like clapping continuously like he's at a sporting event. It's just a clap, and then he goes into his move. Everything he does. So check that out. Now that you see it, you won't be able to ignore it when you watch that on a match. But a little more audio from Jim Ross about officiating. Let's listen to this right now. We have three great, great referees in Jerry Usher, Alfred Neely, and Jack Howe. A lot of times the fans don't agree with the decision, but you, being a former referee on a different occasion, know that you have to see the foul being committed before you can do anything about it. And that's almost impossible in a sport as fast as professional wrestling. Bob Rube showing the viciousness and the tenacity that he does hold, throwing Coco Samoa out the ring, and that's a very good point, boy. Of course, you know, I've made many decisions in college athletics that, uh, and high school athletics that fans did not really agree with. However, you know, the, the na- you hit the nail right on the head. You have to see the infraction before you can, you can penalize someone for it, and that's the situation we have here. Great maneuver, a great maneuver by Coco Samoa. Good example, too, there, Mike, of... When you're not yelling throughout the entire broadcast and you're just talking about what's going on during a match, when something that's actually action-packed happens or something even simple like a roll-up and you raise your voice, it really does lift the emotion of the match. Yeah, because he's sitting there. You're right. He's sitting there talking about the officiating and how it's so true. You can't call what you don't see. That's such a simple line, but it works in basketball, football, baseball. I mean, you cannot call what you don't see. Now, nowadays we have, uh, you know, instant replay that can kind of help cover for that in some sports. And there's an argument to be made, whether you like football or basketball, baseball, if you really like instant replay, uh, that's a whole nother issue. But the point being from JR is you can't call what you don't see. So you can't call when there's an infraction. If you didn't see it, and you had your back turned. There's only one referee and there's four guys out there in tag team or otherwise there's two guys with it's singles and, and one ref. Um, but then again, you made the point, too, where he's in the middle of talking about that, and he finished making his point out of nowhere. Coco Samoa hits that springboard into a sunset flip again, and when he does, it, it, it's just, you know, his voice raises, and it's like, oh, you know, so it, it, it made that move even more impactful. Not only did we just see it, which made it impactful, but the voice raised made it even more impactful. So, yeah, I agree, man. That was – it goes to show you, man, if you don't scream all day long on commentary, when you finally do raise your voice, it's definitely more impactful. Bob Roop would pin Buddy Landell after a leg drop. Of course, Buddy Landell early in his career was Buddy Roop. So a nice little uh, tie-in there where Bob Roop pins him. But going from there, Mike, we get a recap of everything that happened last week with what was originally going to be Ernie Ladd and his hired gun, The Assassin, versus Akbar's Samoan Warriors. And, of course, The Assassin announces he's taken more money from Akbar than Ladd gave him, and he has decided to walk away. Ernie Ladd gets Mike Sharp to be his partner. The Assassin comes back out, takes out Mike Sharp. All three guys, the Samoans and The Assassin, get in the ring. Paul Orndorff runs in to make the save. And I think that's everything. That's everything that happened last week, right? 
Yeah, that was everything. I mean, um, just it was just recapping. You know, I always like the I like the short recaps back in the day because if you missed an episode, you you know this was this was a an important moment. But yeah, you got it you got it all right there. Basically, the assassin turned on Ernie Ladd because he got more money from from Akbar, and then that brought out Mike Sharp and Ernie Ladd battling the Samoans, and Orndorff comes out and helps, and all of a sudden we've got two people who were dastardly heels not that long ago all of a sudden they definitely seem to be baby faces and one helped the other out so you know, good recap there and of course money is the name of the game and akbar has lots of it let's hear a little bit right now from jim ross and boyd pierce boy i think it's very easy to see to put everything in a very concise perspective here that when general skandar akbar realized that the assassin had a price when ernie Ladd bought the assassin to do a job that the assassin had a price akbar when you get into a bidding war, General Skandar Akbar and all that oil money he has, oftentimes Akbar's going to win. That's what happened in this case. The assassin had a price, but he may be paying a bigger price when Ernie Ladd gets back going. And, uh, of course, that confrontation is uh, far, far from over. And we'll see the assassin in action when we return after this word from Mid-South. So, again, just detail. Just laying in more detail, more information about this angle, why you should care about it. Yeah, it's just a breadcrumb trail. I mean, if you really think about it, it's just trying to tie things up, you know, showing people how we, you know, why it makes sense, how we got to where we're at. You know, Akbar's got the oil money. He's paying people off still. And, you know, he got the assassin who, you know, one of the things we hadn't talked about, I, I wasn't, you know, by this point in my life, you know, I, I didn't know who the assassin was until I saw him here. So, like, for me, um, I guess I... I, I there's something that's going to come up in the next match with the assassin and Terry Gibbs that, that, that I guess JR is going to talk about. But for me, you know, it's, it's good for him just in general to tell that story about, you know, again, how we, where we were now, where we're going and we'll, we'll have to stay tuned to see what else happens. I'm glad they had something to talk about because in this next match, the assassin, <laughs> despite all the action he has brought to the show in the last two weeks, brings it to a halt with a long headlock or it's, that's an over simplification of what it is here. But, Definitely one of the slower-paced matches we have seen in a long time. The Assassin versus Terry Gibbs. I'll give you the finish right now. The Assassin naturally wins with a headbutt. Of course, he has the loaded mask, so who knows what's really going on. Jack Howe, the referee, but let's get a little bit from Jim Ross that you kind of teased there a second ago. A little bit about the Assassin from Jim Ross. The Assassin, I think, has to be considered, and I think most wrestling fans will agree with me on this point. I want you to realize I don't agree with his tactics uh, he's a tremendous competitor. I think we will all agree on that. But I think without a doubt, he's probably the greatest masked man in the history of wrestling. You're watching him right now in the ring, the assassin. He has helped many, many titles. He has crippled many, many people. And he's a very brutal and a ruthless individual, as was evidenced last week with him when he walked out on Ernie Ladd. And you know, boy, the odd thing about the assassin, obviously he is a win-at-all-cost individual. But the man can wrestle. That's, the, that's the, the thing that distresses a lot of people is that he does possess a great deal of wrestling ability. And when he wants to utilize those wrestling holes, right there's a good example. Now, he's got a, he's got a basic hole, the headlock on the man, but he's, he's leaning on him. He's taking the air away from him. He's laying on his chest, utilizing that tremendous weight that he does have on, on Terry Gibbs. So not only is he punishing the head and neck area, he's also reducing the oxygen flow. And obviously that'll wear a man down very quickly. Well, there's Jim Ross doing his best to make that headlock more interesting to watch than it is. And he does a good job there, actually. Yeah, I thought so, too. And I, that's what I was teasing a second ago, where he's talking about the assassin, just giving a little bio on him. And 
Yeah, you know, explain the headlock because, I mean, you can hear the crowd. They're kind of just sitting there waiting for something to happen. But to the assassin's credit, he's a heel. He's laying on the guy. He's got the headlock, you know, since then. There's nothing really wrong with that. It, it's just, it is what it is, you know, slower style right there from the assassin as he's got Terry Gibbs grounded. You could do that back then. Obviously, no chance of boring or anything else at that moment. So fans are paying attention. They're quiet, but they're paying attention. Uh, it's because the territory teaches them pay attention to everything. It's worth it in right. the long run. Uh, a little more audio here from Jim Ross during this match. Mike, you could talk about it on the other side. Well, that's right, boy. But I think, you know, it, uh, but when you get down to basics, when you really get down to things and things such as pride and, and, uh, and character, and you talk about guys that's got a lot of pride, like the ex-Marine Dick Murdoch. You talk about guys that's got a great deal of pride and, and the people they represent, like the Junkyard Dog and Mr. Olympia. Well, you can't buy that. You can't put a price on pride. You can't put a price on uh, the way a man feels in his heart when he's when something has, has he's been wronged. And I think that's what's happening here. Akbar and his people have hurt a lot of folks, but they're all coming back. Murdoch's back. Ted DiBiase will be back next week. You know, the list could go, it keeps growing. Uh, what goes around comes around, as they say, and it's going to come around, I think, for General Skandar Akbar. Terry Gibbs making a great account of himself. Terry Gibbs with that bandaged uh, right leg. A great maneuver, the assassin drop kicking. The assassin show, utilizing his every, every ounce of strength in that headbutt, and that takes care of business right there. The headbutt applied by the assassin over Terry Gibbs is a victory, and we'll be back when action returns on Mid-South Wrestling. Well, there it is. The assassin with a victory. Uh, any other thoughts, Mike? No, I just I like that Jr. talking about pride and the injured guys coming back because Akbar has injured a lot of people, and we've we've been down this path and this story's being played out for months now. So I just I kind of like that Jr. brings that up and the match itself. You know, assassin hits the drop kick and then a the headbutt and pins Gibbs. There's really not much there to be honest with you. He's in good shape though for the assassin. You know, you see all the clips of him where he's heavier. This is 1982. It's towards the end of his active career, and he's in pretty good shape here. He's a he's a big man, no matter what. Like, but I've seen the the photos and video of him. Like, I guess in the early 90s, there were it, wasn't he on like a couple of of WCW pay per views. Yeah, and did, like, he he did a few there. things, and he could barely get the mask to fit on his face. I mean, that he yeah. gained a lot of weight by that point. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Like back then, so he he's still a big man at this point, but. You know, he he's moving around well. I mean, he's he's not like lumbering and, and slow. You know, he still looks good, even though he's he's you know, like you said, getting towards the end. But I thought he looks good. I mean, he, for for the assassin, definitely. I mean, he's in good shape. He wears kind of like a I don't say a bodysuit, but a you know, long sleeve, long tights. Uh, but he still he looks good. He he does, he's not overweight like you see him in later years. Going from here, Mike, we go to a recap of last week's match between Bob Roop, the North American champion, and Dick Murdoch. Uh, any notes you have about this? Nah, but I just, I, sh- I should say yes. I, it never gets old for me seeing Dick Murdoch come out, you know, putting his trunks on and, you know, beer falling out of his uh, pack pack and his his uh, canteen and everything else and then getting in the ring and mixing up with Roop. So, no, nah, that, that's all I had. Uh, shout out to a longtime friend of mine and uh, uh, BTT listener, Sean Sparks, who who uh, first uh, tweeted this out on Twitter a couple of I don't know, maybe a year or so ago. And I, this this moment never gets old when Murdoch comes out putting his trunks on as he got his tidy whities as he walks out to the ring. From here, with minutes left in this program, we go to the main event. 
The Samoan Warriors, Afa and Sika, along with the one-man gang and their manager, Skandar Akbar, against the Junkyard Dog, Captain Redneck Dick Murdoch, and Mr. Olympia. And I don't know when they hit the music in the building. Obviously, it comes through the TV before it does there because they weren't reacting to it until the guy started coming out. So I don't know if there was an issue with the audio this week or if it was an issue in general, but clearly they didn't hear the music when it started getting played. But then once they saw the dog and Murdoch and Olympia, the fans were really into this. Yeah, they were really into it. And boy, did they... It's great to see all these guys because, I mean, you got stars in there, man, for Mid-South. But... Boy, they didn't give him much time, did they? I mean, from the time the bell rings, I'm sorry, from the intro to the time the bell rings is maybe three minutes long. Yeah. Uh, but the music, yeah, the music doesn't hit at first, or else it seems that it doesn't. But once they realize it, man, the fans are into it. Uh, we just, but we get a, it's te- it's literally a tease because there's literally, they're out there for no time and then it breaks down immediately. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff we saw in the UWF days where they go to the main event with like two minutes left in the show and then chaos and then they go off the air. Let's uh, listen to this match right now, the last couple minutes of not just the match, but the program. An, inter- an interesting interesting bit of strategy right here. Interesting bit of strategy right here. The one-man gang. The one-man gang is going to start against the junkyard dog. And this is what I've been wanting to see personally. I know that people have too. The one-man gang and the junkyard dog. Six feet ten. He weighs over 400 pounds against a man that words can't ex- describe, the junkyard dog. And JYD's fighting back against the big man. I've never seen anybody do the big man like this. Junkyard dog with that right hand all the way over the top rope. All the way over the top rope. Those six feet, ten inches of the one-man gang with a tremendous thundering uppercut by the junkyard dog. And Jim, Skander Akbar is bewildered on the outside. He can't believe what he just viewed. Our time is going... We just have one minute remaining, and they're pairing up in the ring and outside the ring. All six of them, along with Akbar, are guiding forces. Dick Murdoch's, Murdoch's going to the corner. Keep your eye on Murdoch. Murdoch's going to the bag. He's down in the ring. Now he puts on his cap. Here he comes with the entrenching tool on the Samoan. Time is going. Only 30 seconds remaining. It's Bedlam at his best right here. Remember, next week, Ted DiBiase returned, Bruiser Bob Sweetan, Hacksaw Dugan will make his debut. Our time is running out. Jim Ross, our guest commentator, thank you so much. This is Boyd Pearson. Goodbye, everybody, from Mid-South Wrestling Television Network. I don't know if there was any finish at all. I don't know if it was a time limit thing or a disqualification thing. There's so much that happens quickly. And it ends with, you know, Murdoch with all of his tools and one of the Samoans with a chair around his neck. And the one-man gang misses his splash. The dog gives the one-man gang a couple of uppercuts. And you see the fans start coming unglued. And then the gang takes a bump over the top rope from one of them. And the place just, everyone jumps up. A lot happening here really quick. An exciting way to end the show. What are your thoughts, Mike? Yeah, the the gang and JYD start the match like you're talking about. And then the dog sends the gang over the top rope with what JR called a thundering uppercut. And when gang flies over it, it looks really good. And what made it even better was... You heard Jr. turn it up a notch when 
gang goes flying over. And, and it's, again, one of the signs of things to come uh, from the UWF days. But just JR in general, as we get further on in the Mid-South, where, you know, he becomes more of a regular later on down the line. His his calls are just they're they're really good, you know. I mean, he he doesn't always scream, so when he does turn up the tone, it, it's more impactful. And right there was was a good example because of the way Gang just flew over it. You you nailed it, man. It's never really a match. I mean, uh, the dog and Gang are in there for maybe thirty seconds and do their thing, and then before you know it, it's six guys fighting from almost the start. There's no resolution. Nothing really happens. Uh, Murdoch decides to clean house with his trenching tool again. He hits both the Samoans and the gang uh, in it. And uh, I don't, again, Alfred Neely, he never really calls it. I think it's, it could have been a DQ, but it also could have been TV time remaining, you know, time's up as well. Uh, But still an exciting last three to four minutes of the show. The first time we've seen the dog and the gang have a confrontation or a match here on TV. It's the first time we've really seen the gang take a bump. A big bump, as it were, you know, flying out of the ring for the dog's uppercut. So, you know, really cool stuff, really fun episode here. But as we wrap things up, Mike, I want to remind you, you can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can follow the 605 Super Podcast on Twitter at 605Pod. And you can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at SuperPodcasts. Of course, you can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605Pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your steal your favorite podcast from Classic Wrestling Talk and Wrestling Humor, the 605 Super Podcast, all episodes available for free at 605pod.com. Mike, how can the listeners stay in touch with you and booking the territory? Please give me a follow on Twitter at Mike504Saints. You can catch all of our shows or download them all at tinyurl.com slash btt pod or you can search booking the territory wherever you get your podcast from whether it's apple podcast podcast addict tune in radio stitcher and all those good places you can get podcasts from uh we do two shows a week one is on thursday nights one is on sunday nights that's the debuts that they drop on 7 p.m central time uh mostly focusing on the nwa and saturday night on tbs on thursdays and the sunday show that drops is the smoky mountain wrestling podcast recaps where to date, we are two and a half years into Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and it's been a really, really fun journey. The show is unprofessional, strong language, but we have a good time. Myself, Doc, and Hard Body Hopper. It's an all-around good time. So come check us out again twice per week, and it's just uh, it's a good time. So, Brian, that's all I got, man. Good time this week, though. The Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Mike Mills, I'm the great Brian Last. Book it.